as excited I am about uh, the nice weather, about Easter coming. I hope your trees are turning green and your flowers are coming up and all of the good things that come along with spring. So last month we were discussing some Old Testament songs, the pilgrim songs or the songs of ascents. And these were, as you may remember, uh, a, a period in Israel's history where they were singing these songs after they had been made very contrite by God. He had sent them into exile, he had allowed them to go into exile, and he had brought a remnant home. And they were worshiping and singing these songs out of a renewed heart for God. And they have so much information packed in them for the Christian journey. And so this month, we're going to transition into a new series that we're calling The Resurrected Life. And the reason that we've joined these the way that we have is that restoration is only one half of the story. It's only one half of the hope. Resurrection, of course, as we know as Christians, is the other half of the hope. Uh, why? Well, first of all, because there's only so many things in life that can be restored. Only so many exiles come home. Some of us have gone so far in a life of sin or, or we have been cut short by tragedy that there isn't enough life left to restore fully. We don't get the full enjoyment here on earth out of our walk with God. And so he has promised something that is even greater than just restoration. He has promised resurrection. And we see this hope in Jesus. We all know this is part of the scriptural story, but this month we're going to talk about it. It's convenient also that the songs of ascent, that they would be singing these on their way up to the major feasts in Jerusalem. They'd be on their way up through the hill country and the mountains up to Jerusalem, and they'd be singing these as they ascended. And now, this month, we have arrived, in a sense. We have looked at the songs, we've sung the songs with them, and we've arrived in Jerusalem where Jesus' resurrection uh, takes place. And just a couple of weeks from now, two weeks from now, all of the world will take note of the resurrection story. And yes, it's true. We Christians, we honor Jesus' resurrection every week. It's not a once-a-year experience for us. This is the heartbeat of our faith. And yet the world will be paying attention. And so we're going to pay close attention as well so that we're prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Amen, church? So that we're ready to receive them. And the challenge for all of us, for you and for I, is that we would be in the next couple of weeks looking for those extra opportunities that God is opening in front of us. He's opening doors with coworkers and families and friends. And so this month, we're going to talk about resurrection for our own benefit, but also so that we're preparing to present the gospel in a meaningful way. Both that you and I are all preparing to present it, but also that on uh, Easter Sunday, that we'll be sharing the gospel, the good news about Jesus' resurrection right here that Sunday morning so that anyone who comes can hear it and hear about the hope of being included in Christ for their own life. And then, this will be the really important question in this series. In the last two weeks of this month, because this is a five-Sunday month, so in the last two weeks of the month, we're going to be looking at what are the implications of the promise of resurrection for our lives now. In other words, if we're truly living a life that is the resurrected life, it's already begun, but it'll be completed in, uh, at, the, at the great day, at the final day, when the trumpet will sound and the dead will arise. If that is true, 
then what does it change now? What does it mean about life today and tomorrow? And so I hope that you'll bear with me this morning, because today we're going to get into a into resurrection from an angle that is very much about the teaching of it. And a lot of this will be review for you, but I hope that it will be refreshing. We won't get to all of the implications today. Today we're setting the stage. In the next four weeks, we'll discuss various implications. And so I hope you're ready to begin with me, uh, the resurrected life. Let's have a short word of prayer, and then we'll begin. God, we ask that you would receive these things that we're talking about in the next uh, four, five weeks, today and the four after, and that you would use this to your glory. We pray that you would help uh, us to see Scripture clearly and to understand your plan for us from what we read. And we pray that your Spirit would move us and show us the implications and the actions that should be evident in our lives, the things that we can do and that we ought to do and the things that we should believe because of this truth that you've revealed in Jesus. God, we have great hopes because you're with us. You've given us a perfect word and you've given us your perfect son. And so it's in him we hope. It's in him we pray. In his name and all who agree say, amen. All right. So the resurrected life. Here is the key question that we're going to look at this morning. The key question is this, what is the meaning of resurrection? And I don't mean to say, what are the implications? Because like I've said, we're going to talk about implications in the coming weeks. But what is the referent? Like, what does it mean to say resurrection? What happened one day, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem that we call the resurrection? What was it that actually happened? And what is the promise for you and for me? And the reason this question is so important, what is the meaning of the resurrection, is that it is so often misunderstood by the world at large, by those who are familiar with our faith, but not intimately familiar with it. This question is so often misunderstood. You've probably encountered a variety of scenarios, like I have, where you've been discussing your faith with someone who knows a little bit about Christianity, but just enough to be dangerous and not enough to really be transformative. Have you ever had an experience like this? You'll be talking with somebody and they'll bring up, you know, I know you're a Christian, so you believe in this, and, and guess what? And they'll bring up a story of maybe a near-death experience or something like that they had or a relative had. And they'll start describing, did you know that this is, you know, what heaven is going to be like? Or that there's going to be this tunnel of light? Or these are the jobs that everyone will be given or so on based on a, what they've read or what they've seen on a History Channel special. Or maybe they've read a book about a near-death experience of some kind. And so they really feel like they've been informed about what comes after life. How many of you have uh, talked with somebody who really wasn't aware at all that Christianity promised a resurrection? They simply thought that Christianity was a good way of living now, or that the hope was that someday we would maybe be some disembodied, ethereal spirit, some glowing orb, some kind of shapeless creatures that would just be floating in a spiritual realm with no actual contact with reality. Maybe you were even raised in the church and you were taught some things that I would consider extremely damaging to the New Testament witness. Maybe you were taught that in heaven we would not know each other, that there wouldn't be any recognition of one another. Maybe, contrary to scripture, you were taught that there wouldn't be any remembrance or memory of life that came before. 
there's a lot of things in Scripture that get a little confusing. For instance, there's one passage that says, our minds can't comprehend of everything that's to come and what will happen in the future. Aren't you familiar with that passage of Scripture? It says our minds can't comprehend it, so we know our knowledge is limited. And yet, church, I want to say this to us. Even though our knowledge is limited, we can't pretend that the things that are clearly stated and promised in Scripture just cease to be or don't exist because there's certain things we don't understand. The things that are clearly outlined in Scripture, we have to hold to because it's on them our hope is based. And so let's proceed as we look at this question. What is the actual meaning of resurrection? What is the event and what is the promise? And we're going to start on this premise. This is our foundation. It's the only thing we actually know about resurrection. And it's this. The only example is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There isn't any other case that you can look at that will clearly demonstrate to you, that will show to you what is the promise of our resurrection. This is the only one that's ever happened. And again, I know this is like elementary to Christians, but we've got to make sure we're all working from the same place. And so think about it. There have been other people brought back to life. Even right now in our day and age, uh, sometimes you'll see like a, a resuscitation, right? Where someone is just about gone, or maybe the heartbeat has stopped. Maybe even the brain activity seems to have shut down. And then somehow, unpredictably, against all odds, what the doctors thought couldn't happen, they revive. They're back. You know, they're able to start the heart again. Or suddenly there's, there's activity there in the mind again, and they're back with us. And we say, wow, that was incredible. But that's not exactly a resurrection because they're going to die again the body will eventually decay and there's got to be something more beyond that because if a, re a revival in the body means you only get five more years that's not a very good hope and that's not what happened at all to jesus in the bible there's different people that were raised you could think of some old testament examples and new jesus even raises a few people most remarkably lazarus after Lazarus had been dead for four days and his body had begun to decay, which is a moment in which Jesus takes advantage of and he says that he is the resurrection. He declares it in power through the Spirit's testimony as he raises Lazarus. And that's the moment that the Jews decide, this thing is getting completely out of hand. We need to kill him. Why did they decide to kill Jesus? Because he's making resurrection the center of his teaching. He's even claiming that he is this resurrection and that he'll impart it to others. And so the only example that we really have is Jesus' own resurrection. He's the only person in history that the church believes was raised in a new, transformative, and powerful way and remains alive today. Amen, church. Amen. And so here's our next premise, and this will dive in just a little deeper here now with some scripture. And this is where we're moving. Jesus' resurrection, since it's the only example that we have, is the first fruits. It is the pattern. It is the example of what is going to come. This is the hope for you and I. And scripture will make this abundantly clear. And so you might remember, two months ago, we had a series in which the whole series was called First Fruits. And we used that phrase or that word to talk about what are we giving in relationships that matter? What are we giving to our spouse, to our children, to our parents? Uh, how do we live giving a first fruit kind of love of God and the church if we're single in a single stage in life? And we looked at those four lessons and we used first fruits to mean this. 
giving the very best or the top, the cream of the crop, right, right off the top of our best in these important relationships that matter. First fruits can mean giving the best. It, it ties back to the harvest that these people would have had in an agrarian culture where they go out and they get the very first of the harvest and they would bring that to God as an offering. One, this is the best and the fresh and the first off the plant or the vine. But also to say, may there be more like it. May this be the first fruit of the harvest and we give it to God in hope and in faith that there will be so much more like it coming off the plant or off the vine. Believing in faith that God was going to provide more harvest than the first fruits. And so in this case, we see that Jesus is the first of a kind. He's the pattern. Look at these scriptures with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. This chapter is the most famous chapter about the resurrection. And so we'll refer to it many times in the next month. But for right now, look at this one verse. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Paul's engaging an argument with the Corinthian church in which some of the people were starting to say some things like you might hear in the modern world. That there isn't really a resurrection, that that's just a picture or a figure or a metaphor. Maybe they're saying, as would have been common in their culture, uh, that the physical world is so bad and so corrupt and so evil that a good God wouldn't be able to engage in creation for eternity He's got to, at some point, completely annihilate everything that's been made and that only spirits can exist because only spirits are pure. This was a really prevalent and popular Greek philosophy called dualism, and it still exists today. But it was invented, as far as we can tell, by a Greek philosopher named Plato. And he talked about how there was forms in the universe that were only spiritual, that all created things, all matter was corrupt. And this was probably getting around in Corinth. They were discussing this in Corinth and they were thinking because of everything the Bible talks about, about spirituality and that God is a spirit and that God isn't like a man with a body, that maybe the ideal teaching or the way Christians ought to believe is that someday we're going to be disembodied spirits too. We're going to be these ethereal beings. And somehow or some way in Corinth, this all got stirred up and Paul says to them, now, if Christ is proclaimed raised, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? In other words, you're completely detaching your understanding of what comes after life from what actually has happened in Jesus Christ. You're losing the foundation. You're losing the base. And then he'll illustrate it in these ways. In fact, he says in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. Understanding, again, that the actual argument that Paul is engaging is that Christ was alive, but only in spiritual form. This is the argument he's engaging, is that Christ left behind his body and somehow forever will only be disembodied. He says, no, Christ is raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in case the biblical language may be confusing to you at this point, it's not uncommon for Paul and the other New Testament authors to say falling asleep when what they mean is that you've passed away or that you've died. The reason they use that language is because they so firmly believe that there is an afterlife of some kind. 
The question is, what kind will it be? And so he says, those who have fallen asleep have a hope. Their hope is that they, like the crop that comes later in the season after the first fruits were dedicated to the temple, will also be harvested by God. That they'll be raised like Christ in the first fruits. In verse 23, he picks up the theme again. But each in his own order. In other words, we can't expect for this to happen backwards. Christ is the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So he is the early harvest. When the time comes for him to return, all those who belong to him will follow. Now Paul isn't, certainly isn't the only one who believes this in the New Testament church. This is from Acts 26, and this is a speech of Paul's, but it's recorded by Luke. Luke is one of the New Testament Christians, one of the early believers, who notes in his gospel that he did meticulous research and he interviewed people to make sure that the things he was writing was true and to make sure that it was what all the church believed was true. He traveled with Paul, but he also knew others in the early church. And he records Paul saying this in one of his testimonies in the book of Acts. Paul said, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And before I read you what he testifies to, I want you to notice that Paul believes and Luke records that this truth can be found in Moses and the prophets. Now, because you know that we're talking about resurrection, you know that the next verse is going to have to do with resurrection. But the Old Testament Jews didn't believe uniformly in resurrection. It was something that was coming up. It was bubbling up around the time that Jesus was on earth that more and more Jews were believing that there would be some kind of resurrection of the dead. In fact, it's such a, an important debate at this time in history that there was two different sects within the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You remember hearing about them. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, and Paul had been one of those before he was converted to become a Christian. The Sadducees denied it. They said that this life is all there is, and after that we'll just exist in some shadowy, eternal, disembodied state in Sheol. That will be kind of these floating, lifeless, memoryless, identityless spirits. Into that world and that environment of tension within the people of God is the moment that Jesus shows up on earth in a body and is killed by those Jews, both the ones who believed in resurrection and the ones who didn't believe in resurrection, and to all of their astonishment is raised from the dead, not at the end of time, but right that weekend. That was a shock to all of them. And yet, Paul says, this could have been foretold for Moses and the prophets. The evidence is in the Old Testament, even if we didn't always get it or believe it. And this is what he says, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He says that this teaching can be found in the Old Testament. So we'll look at one example of that before we're done today. Here's another example in Paul from Colossians 1. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. So his reason for being first, the first fruits, the firstborn, is so that he can lead in every way, so that he can be preeminent, so that he will truly be the founder of our faith, the author and the fulfiller of our faith. In Revelation, John wrote this, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, understanding that John and Luke and Paul, none of them believe firstborn of the dead to mean he simply is existing somewhere else. He's barely alive in some spiritually unidentifiable state, but that they had seen him, they had touched him, they knew that he had been raised in his body. He's the firstborn of the dead, says John. The same John who wrote in 1 John 1, we saw him with our own eyes, we touched him with our own hands. The ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. In Philippians, we encounter again from Paul. In Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so Paul writes clearly to the Philippian church, even though he doesn't use the word first fruit, that Christ's body is the first example. His is the pattern, that ours will be like it. How? Unknown. But through transformative power that comes from the Spirit of God, we will be made like him. This leads us to another question or another building block that we're going to need for the month ahead. If it's true that Jesus is the only example of resurrection, and if it's true that he's the first fruits or the pattern, that we will be like him, then what can we learn from his resurrection? Both the stories in the Gospels and what's testified in the New Testament letters that gives us some insight, some biblical solid ground to put our feet on about this hope. And here is what we're going to look at. That Jesus' resurrected body shows remarkable continuity. Now here's what I mean when I say remarkable continuity. I mean that Jesus' body from before his crucifixion and his body after his resurrection show continuity with each other. That this is in fact the same man the same person, the same identity. And look at some of the evidence with me, if you will. First of all, from Luke chapter 24 and verse 39. And while I'm reading this, I'm going to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 24 because I want to read a little bit more of this with you this morning. But first, this verse in verse 39 is the key. Jesus said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself in other words, look and touch and, and take it in. I have continuity with who I was before. Touch me and see. For a spirit, look at what Jesus says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In other words, Jesus is claiming you can believe that this is vindication from God, that he actually made our faith real and proven, that he put a seal of approval on what I've taught, that this is all going to happen for us, it's going to happen for you, because you can see that I'm not eternally a spirit anymore. I've got flesh, and I've got bones, and this is my resurrected state. Now look at 
Luke 24 with me. We're going to start in verse 36 because I want you to, to take in the whole impact of the setting in which Jesus says this. Luke 24, 36. As they were talking about these things, they're in this room discussing Jesus and what had just happened in his crucifixion and all of that, and his, and his missing body, because his body isn't in the tomb. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Now, if you read back a little, you'll see that only moments before he was eating in a different town with two disciples who didn't immediately recognize him, okay? And then when they do recognize who he is, he vanishes, and he appears in this room with the disciples. And he says, peace to you, of course, because if a man suddenly popped into existence next to you, it would not be our first inclination to feel peace. So Jesus arrives, he pops into the room, and he says, peace to you. It's going to be okay, guys. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Do you see what? Did you hear it? They thought this must be a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, look at what he does next. He showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. They're saying to themselves, this just can't be true. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? Jesus is going to prove to them that he's in a body and that he's not a spirit. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it remarkable that in the book of John, we have a similar story, a separate story in John 21, in which Jesus shows up on the beach while some of these guys are fishing, and he calls them in, and he's been cooking breakfast on the beach for them, and then he sits down and he eats breakfast with them, and who they thought was gone from them forever, because all of us know and all of the Jews knew, even though they lived in the first century, and you could say they lived in a world full of epics and mythology and Greek and Roman polytheism, they still knew that dead people stayed dead. Why do you think they were weeping at Lazarus' tomb? They know this. Everyone knows this. And yet, he's eating with them again? Remarkable. Remarkable continuity. Look at these pieces of evidence. Write them down if you wish. He had wounds in his hands and his feet. And his side, which was very uncommon, so this isn't a body double, this isn't a twin or a brother. No one else could have had the mark in his side like his body did. He was recognizable, even though maybe not immediately, but they could, they could see it. They, could, they couldn't hardly believe it, but they could tell this is the Lord. And his tomb is empty, and it stands empty to this day because there is no body in it because his body was raised. This is the foundation of Christian hope. This is why we celebrate an empty tomb and a stone rolled away. Because of the continuity of who he was and who he still is. Yes, there is something different. He is markedly leveled up. To put it in gamer language, it's like he got new powers or something. Jesus has leveled up. And you can see this in a couple of ways. He appears and he disappears. He goes from uh, Emmaus to Jerusalem in a heartbeat. 
And he isn't instantly recognized by everyone. In John, there's a story about Mary Magdalene seeing him. And as she weeps in her grief, she looks and she doesn't really recognize him in her tears and in her grief. She thinks he's the gardener. But you notice she doesn't think he's an angel or spirit like the two angels that they had just met at the tomb. She thinks he's a man, namely the gardener, and he says to her, Mary. And she looks at him. And she recognizes him, although not immediately. I told you that we would look at the Old Testament before we were done today. And this might be the, I don't know, maybe the, the worst place in the Old Testament to start. But this is what we're going to look at this morning. And in the weeks to come, we'll look at a few more examples. In Job 19, 26, in the middle of his misery, Job made this statement. It's the statement where we get that song, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he says, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. I want to read you the rest of this verse for impact as well. And Job 19, if you want to write this down or turn there, starting in verse 23, Job 19, 23. Job says, oh, that my words were written and inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in rock forever. In other words, I wish that these words I'm about to say could be turned into scripture, that they would never be taken away. Interesting that they did turn into scripture, even though he had no way to know that they would. He says, oh, that they were inscribed in a book. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. Notice he repeats it for emphasis. I will see him myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. And at this truth, Job exclaims, my heart faints within me. I can't even believe what just came out of my own mouth. It melts me. It just makes me faint to think of what I just said, that my body could be destroyed, and yet I would stand and see God. I don't even believe that myself. And why? Because no one in his day believed in resurrection. We have no record of Jews from the ancient times of Job talking about resurrection. And the only person in the New Testament that's even hinted at believing in resurrection this early is Abraham. And Abraham only guessed it by faith, as Hebrews 11 says, because Abraham had guessed that if God wants me to kill Isaac, he must be able to raise him from the dead, because otherwise all of his promises are in vain. There won't be a people of God. And Abraham somehow, in the middle of grief and anguish with great faith, was able to imagine a resurrection that Jesus wasn't even going to demonstrate for us for thousands of years. And that resurrection that Abraham guessed at would have also had to have been in the body, in the real flesh. Because otherwise, how would Isaac make a race? How would he pass on his DNA? How would he make children and fulfill the promise of God? If Abraham didn't believe, he would be brought back. Now here's Paul as we wrap up together this morning. Borrowing from what was a seed in the Old Testament. What was only an idea or a wish that could hardly be grasped at in the Old Testament. But it had been proven to be true in Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to make it startlingly clear in these two passages. 2 Corinthians 5, he wrote this to that same Corinthian church a little later. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. Now, pay attention that in Paul's language here, he's saying 
that our body, our current body, what you look at and you call Josh Bundy is a tent. He's not talking about actual homes like we're herdsmen who travel around in tents. He says this body is like a tent. But we know that if our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Well, anyone who's ever taken the SAT or the ACT should be able to do this, right? Tent is to building as this body is to, and you would go, oh, much improved, more stable, you know, better foundation, longer lasting body, right? That's clearly what Paul's getting at. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, interesting because even though it isn't a direct quote, what did Jesus say when he prophesied about his own resurrection? He said, in three days, you'll tear this building down. You'll tear this temple down. And I'll raise another not built with hands. And he was talking about his own resurrection. We'll have a home not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Paul's confronting the same problem in Corinth that he had addressed earlier. We're not going to be disembodied. We're not going to be floating around. We don't want to be naked. No, rather, while we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, that God would put more on us than is on us now, that he'd make us more real than we've ever been, and more lasting, more durable, incorruptible, more solid so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Amen, church. And back again in 1 Corinthians 15, the original letter to these same people, he wrote, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. Like this body that goes in the ground is like a seed that dies, and the, the husk or the hull will rot away. But what is raised out of that is imperishable. And yet in Paul's metaphor, in his figure, as we know, Seeds and their plants always have continuity. They have the same identity. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in natural body, but raised a spiritual body. And notice Paul doesn't say it's only forever a spirit. He feels compelled to say, yes, it's a different body, but it's a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven, who's Jesus. And so Paul agrees with Job, even though Job could not possibly have understood the implications of what he was saying, that yet in my flesh I will see God that we will be resurrected bodily like Jesus was, that this, according to Paul, and John and Luke and others who witnessed it and saw him and touched him is the bedrock foundation. This is the hope of the Christian faith. And you can't be messing with this without changing a lot of other things that you didn't mean to change. You can't twist this or restate it without losing something of what was promised. Today I want to leave you with just one implication, just one idea, and it's brief in your bulletin today, there is this parenting class announcement. It's a beautiful opportunity for our church. The state will require that certain people who have gotten in trouble have to go through parenting classes in order to have a hope of getting their children restored to them. 
But so often the people who are assigned by the judge to go to a parenting class will look around in northwest Arkansas and find that there is no such class made available. There's no certified, state-approved class. And so they've got to drive hours to go find one somewhere else. Our congregation, the work of John Dias and Lori Wood and others, has managed to arrange for our church to become the sole certified parenting class in this region to serve people who need to have parenting class to get their children restored to them. And I want to tell you that this matters more when we think about people as having a future resurrection than it does when we just think of them as identityless, nameless, memoryless spirits. Because these people are going to live for some eternity with continuity of who they were now. And they're going to remember some things. And if they're saved, God can wipe away every tear it's promised in Scripture. But wouldn't we rather that they're able to joyfully and celebratively join with the church in saying, in my time, time of need, it was the people of God that came to my rescue, and I'm going to remember that for all eternity. Wouldn't you rather that, church? Amen? They're people with eternal souls, but not just eternal souls, with eternal persons, identities, and personalities. And so there's a way you can get involved and mentor in this class and participate if you so wish, and we hope that some of you will take advantage of that. Today, if there's anything else we can do for you, offer you baptism, the prayers of the church, help in any way. We hope that we can do so. Our hope is sure someday we'll live in a body of some kind with God forever, and we want you to join us. Come forward as we stand.